Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 45 of the Your Say podcast. Today's a trigger warning. It's a heavy one. We are going to talk all about part two mental health, Nikki's journey. We do get deep, we get right amongst it. However, the Your Say podcast is here to support everyone in all the parts of life. So I think it's really important that we delve into this part of mental health. So I hope you enjoy. Be sure to share, comment, like. I think these conversations are imperative to normalize how people are dealing with life. Enjoy. But first, some information from our sponsor, Dress to the Nines, Gippsland. Here's how it works, guys. I've actually just done this because I've got two events coming up in one week. So you jump on Instagram, you have a look at all the beautiful dresses, you get in contact with the girls, you don't even need to phone them, you can just message them directly. They send you, I got five dresses express posted to me today. I try them on, I work out which one I'm going to wear, I let them know which one I'm going to wear. They've sent me a self-addressed envelope, all for free. So far, I haven't paid for anything. Once I choose the dress I'm going to wear, I wear it and I send them all back and I'm charged for one wear. The most expensive hire you have is $105. So depending on the dress that you get, they've got all the brands. Oh my God, they've got all the brands. Zimmerman, Chic, da 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 all the brands. So look out because I'm going to be looking hot. Make sure you follow them on Instagram, dressed to the nines, Gippsland. Okay, everyone. Today's episode's a big one. I'm going to put a warning out there. We are going to talk about some pretty deep topics. Uh, One of such will be around mental health, but also we will touch on suicide. So if this is triggering for you, you might want to skip this episode. Otherwise, it is a deep but powerful episode. Mental health is one of the biggest topics that we get requested to talk about on the Your Say podcast. And a few months ago, we did record an episode, episode one. And in that, I touched on a little bit of what's gone on with my mental health. But before I got some more specialists on the podcast, I felt very drawn to share my true story because I hadn't actually done that. And I don't think I was comfortable to do that a few months ago, but it's something I've sat with for the last few days and I've decided to share my journey. As we know, I share for the reason to help others and for anyone out there that is struggling in anything in their life to normalize all that. For those of you that are supporting others that you think might not be right, I want the Your Say podcast to be a library of knowledge and a library of a space where you can come and get that support and know where to reach out to. So let's jump into mine. So as a young girl, I was always very, Nikki should speak, Nikki should think before she speaks. Nikki should think before she speaks. I was definitely out there. I've talked many times before around my childhood. I think I craved attention at a really young age. And so I was a bit of a show off, would kind of lie a little bit. I wouldn't say I was a massive rat bag compared to what's out there, you know, in some areas of of the world, but I certainly, I was no straighty 180 as a youngster, that's for sure. But mental health as a kid was not something that was even talked about back then. So I just went along my merry way, 
got through school, did all the things. And it probably wasn't until I was in my 30s and by then had built a pretty successful career that I started to be aware of what mental health even was. Like to me, growing up, you were either crazy or you were normal. And we know how much I hate that banner label normal. And I was in the normal category, you know, for want of a better word, which I hated, by the way. I always felt very different. I felt like I learned differently. I felt like I thought differently. I am someone who is a really deep thinker. And I don't suppose I really gave it more thought than I was a little bit different, which I think everyone goes through. And my journey into mental health started just after I came out as being gay, which was about 31. So it wasn't until that time. So I was 31 years of age. I'd never seen a psychologist. I'd never seen a counsellor. I'd never have any, I'd never had any sort of self-help. And that was pretty normal back then. Like that's, you know, today it's favourably really talked about. And a lot of young people go and seek out help, which I'm a huge advocate for. But back when I was growing up, it certainly wasn't the done thing. So at around the age of 32, I went and saw my first counsellor and I was connected to her via a friend. And she was a qualified counsellor, lovely Canadian lady by the name of Briar. And she just helped me come out, essentially. She helped me navigate my divorce. She helped me navigate the feelings, the thoughts. And I worked with her on and off for oh about 10 years. So she saw me go through my first girlfriend and then that relationship broke up. And then I started my second serious relationship, which is the one that I've talked about many times on the podcast that ended about two and a half years ago. So she was a really pivotal person for me across that 10 years. And at no time did I think there was ever a mental health issue with me medically. I just felt like I had some stuff. I talked about it. There was a lot of family stuff that I worked through. I did something called a family constellation. And if you've never heard of that, you can look it up. It's particularly great for people that have had trauma in their childhood, which is, let's be honest, all of us. And what you do is you go back. It's almost like uh, a mix between hypnosis and reparenting yourself. And you go back in time and the counsellor holds a, a beautiful space. And my family constellation was done with little figurines. So one of the figurines took the role of your mum, your grandma, yourself, your brother, etc. And the counsellor almost takes on the persona and the voice of that other person. And you go back in time and you really you really delve into Nikki, you're five years old, you're looking at your mum, what do they look like? And it's pretty out there, but it was very powerful. I did mine twice across like a two-hour period. And I think in that two hours, we, you know, we touched on some very heavy stuff and it was truly enlightening for me. I really managed to in those moments go back and forgive my mum. I had a lot of hatred towards her. I was a little, well, not a little bit, I was very much a victim. And, you know, I let some of the things that had gone on in my childhood define who I was. And doing a family constellation for me was very life-changing. It was a really pivotal part in my relationship with my family moving forward. It allowed me to move into a space of love and acceptance and 
it was truly transformational. I then, you know, I encouraged other people over time to go back and, and have a, a go at it. A lot of counsellors do it differently. I'm sure psychologists do something like it as well. But that was really my first exposure to the kind of why and how to get help. And I couldn't, you know, I can't speak highly enough about it. And one of the things I want to touch on, and again, you know, I don't claim to be a doctor. This is certainly just my personal experience. I did work with a psychologist in that time as well. And the difference for me between a psychologist and a counsellor is obviously a whole lot of qualifications. But when you see a psychologist, it is a little bit more clinical and it's very much about why that's happening and they give you a very clinical answer. And I personally didn't feel like there was enough empathy and not enough understanding. The sessions were shorter, you were kind of in and out, and then you didn't really go back for another, depending on how much money you had back then, two to three weeks. Whereas counseling was a lot more coach-like. It was a lot more try this, do this, bring your journal in, do this for homework. If you get stuck, get in contact with me. It was far more appropriate for my learning ability and it really changed my life. You know, I was introduced to journaling in my 30s and that became something I did. It was something I only did when I was in trauma and when I was in a really dark place. So that was kind of my first exposure. The psychologist that I saw in those moments in my 30s, I didn't find overly beneficial. I did find some of the philosophies and those types of things really interesting. But for me, I continued to see a counsellor and I went on in my second relationship instead of seeing a counsellor when the shit hits the fan. We actually saw a counsellor when we started seeing each other. So we went off to the same counsellor in a couple environment and we're like, we want to set our relationship up for the best possible success you know we had come together via an affair i wasn't proud of the actions that that i did back then and it wasn't um what's the right word it was just a really messy space and i wasn't proud that one relationship had ended and i entered another one and that would then come back and bite me which we'll talk about in a second but certainly I found that counselling was just so, so helpful for my mental health. I was also introduced with this counsellor some years later to tapping. If you've never heard of tapping, tapping is a program where, again, you go through a little bit of a hypnosis type scenario and you learn where those points are to tap and you tap into a good or you tap into a a controlled good energy and it's almost a little bit like if you've heard of the elastic band around the wrist and when you start thinking of something you, you break that cycle and I learned tapping because I was really struggling in the boardroom in a corporate career at that time I was struggling being me <laughs> I was struggling having an opinion I felt very misunderstood I felt like when I spoke it was different to when the men spoke and I couldn't really find my voice. You know, whilst I was very successful and did really well in all of my careers, I still was far too attached, far too, um, I used to say I was too passionate, if you can ever be too passionate. And looking back at it now, I was. I just gave way too, way too, way too many fucks about it. And for me, this is back in a time where I was validated by my work and the money that I earned. So I was certainly 
you know, I was really obsessive about my job and the hours I did. And, you know, it's certainly not how I feel 15, 10, 15 years later, but at the time it was. And so I learned how to tap and tapping for me was you would tap above your eyebrows, under your eyes, chin down, and then you would clasp my wrist. That would kind of be the ending of it. And I learned how to do that in really stressful moments. And it ended up being really, really helpful for me. So I back then interrupted so much. I still do. I'm not going to pretend that I don't. (laughs) But back then in a work environment, I interrupted and it came across as really rude. But the truth is it wasn't rude. It was me getting excited and wanting to interject, you know, and but socially that was rude. You know, that wasn't listening and hearing those other people. So for me, tapping was something that really helped me. It was something I used probably my career for about five years. It's not something I practice now, but it was definitely something that really helped me. And I know that there's ways where you can teach that to kids when they're getting picked on or when they're in a really stressful environment. And it's just something I want to give a shout out to because I do think that that is something you can be taught, you know, within one to two sort of sessions of seeing counsellors and you can actually really utilize it in your life moving forward immediately it's um it's really powerful so that's kind of where my mental health was sitting i still definitely felt different and somewhat um i still kind of felt alone even though i'd done a lot of the family work i just still felt quite alone in my thoughts so That was tapping. Tapping, family constellation, two really powerful things. I also also learned in that particular journey, my counsellor was quite energetic. She was quite holistic before the time, right? Before we were talking about manifesting, before we were talking about touching our heart and, and dropping into ourselves. Like these concepts were very witchy poo and woohoo like back when i was being introduced to them there's certainly something that i think is very common now and something that's talked about and we're also in an era here where podcasting and you know aside from getting a self-help book you know it wasn't really the discussed thing so let's pivot ourselves and fast forward 10 years let's take ourselves back to what then became my sort of mental health slide. I was in my relationship. It was, you know, going along along its merry way. And I definitely reflect now on this relationship with such a different set of thought patterns and my eyes are opened. You know, I've never been the person that I am sitting here right now recording this podcast. And when I look back now at that relationship, it was good, but there was definitely red flags and there's definitely there was definitely moments where my mental health was suffering, but I was sort of pushing it out to my partner. I wasn't owning my portion of it. I was definitely outsourcing my power. This is something that, you know, I do not do now. And it's something that I work with clients one-on-one. I'm always teaching women to not disempower themselves. I'm teaching women to take back their power and not let somebody else validate them. And I'm so passionate about this because for what was a nine year relationship, I did that. I didn't have self love. And so therefore I relied on a partner to respond to a text or to touch me in a certain way or to act in a certain way or to look a certain way. And then I would feel whole, you know, once I lost the weight, they'd love me more. Once I did this, they'd love me more. If I kept the house a certain way, surely they would love me more. 
And this is all really, really disempowering behavior. And I think for me at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I was wearing different masks and convincing myself that we were in love and that was part of it. And I'm not suggesting for a second that we weren't in love because I do believe that we were. But after our second son was born, my partner had her own journey with mental health and the impact that that then had on us was quite large. And obviously the family dynamics change when you go from one child to two children. And so eventually I don't need to go through the details because I have discussed this before, but our relationship in 2020 uh, went through a major crack. There was an affair and I was kind of left pretty gobsmacked and I would never have thought in a million years that my ex-partner would have cheated on me. And I, I mean, I don't think you can ever prepare yourself for it, but sadly, when I look back at previous relationships that I had had, I kind of had prepared myself for it. I'd always had, oh, well, if this doesn't work, I can do this. If this doesn't work, I can do this. But in this relationship, I didn't have a plan B. I thought that I was with my person forever and we had our lifelong plans and I thought that was a done deal. And so to be completely blindsided and then discover infidelity was diabolical, you know, for me. And I immediately went from what I thought then was an okay person. So I, I, put that, you know, big provisor out there because there would be women and men listening to this podcast now going, yeah, that's me. But in reality, I was enabling the behavior that was going on in my relationship for at least 12 months before the affair started. And I own my part in it. I definitely know that my attachment style was quite anxious and my partner's was avoidant. And so, you know, the two of those together are toxic and no one wins. <laughs> so no one was winning in my relationship and neither of our mental health was sitting well. And so I don't justify the actions and nor would she of what she took, but it's, it, it ended in an affair and the affair went on and I stayed in the relationship to try and mend the relationship for 10 months. And in that 10 months, my mental health was so bad. I was running on fight or flight. I was constantly in an anxious state. I was constantly, um, God, it's so triggering even just thinking back now to what I was like. I was, I was literally just fixated and obsessed about what was going on in my life. And I own that and I see that. Like I, I mean, this was in the middle of COVID. <laughs> COVID for me is like, it didn't even happen. So 2020 for everyone, they were locked up. I wasn't watching the news. I was just trying to put one foot in front of the other, save my family and, you know, try and be okay. So it was a really, really difficult time. And it was in the October of 2020 that I actually sought help. So this is my number one point. <laughs> So for anyone out there that's suffering or knows that someone's suffering is asking for help. Number one, the most important thing. Now, for me, I recommend that you ask for help professionally. I don't think taking your problem, mental health problem to your friend first is smart. So I think going to a GP is the number one thing that you can do. And that's what I did at the time. 
I was still half in, half out of my relationship and I was very open with my GP and let her know what was going on and just said, look, I'm pretending to cope, but I'm not coping, you know, and I was lying to the people in my street. I was lying to my family, my friends, you know, I was keeping all of this in. As you guys know from listening to the Your Say podcast, I'm pretty much an oversharer. So this was killing me inside. And so the doctor went through and prescribed what I had as PTSD. And I was then put onto seeing a psychologist and was treated for PTSD and was put on anxiety tablets. And I think it was, I wasn't, I had no shame around it at the time because I was just like anything, anything, anything. I didn't think that I had PTSD. I'm like, how can I have PTSD from that? Like I didn't fight in the war or, you know, I I felt guilty for being labeled that. I felt like a level of guilt. Well, I can't have PTSD from someone having an affair. Like that's not a big enough deal. Um, But as I do, I researched it and I looked at it and I realized that then every other drama that happened afterwards in that 10 month period took me back to that night, that night of discovery, that night of completely being debilitated in my life as I knew it. And I'll never be that person again that I was on that night, but PTSD does come back and reoccurs and reoccurs and reoccurs. And so I was then on medication for anxiety. I knew I had PTSD. My relationship ended. 2021, I went into, you know, split your life up. Um, I went out and dated. I went out and drank. I tried to fill the void of everything. And nothing was working, to be honest. I was still taking the medication. I haven't stopped taking the medication. In this year now, everyone obviously knew things had become public. And I was a bit of a train wreck, to be honest. And I obviously by now had lent into people, people knew, but I was still faking it at work. And I was still... I wouldn't say I was faking it at home because I I managed to keep my family as unscathed as I could. I put on, you know, a brave face. Like meanwhile, you know, my youngest son was definitely struggling having two homes. But in 2021, I'd stopped seeing the psychologist and I had seeked out a new counsellor. So I had been seeing her for a year. I actually saw her as a couples counsellor with my ex-partner and then her and I continued to do work together. And I knew in myself I wasn't good. And I had had a short relationship with a girl that hadn't worked out. It was a long distance thing. I wasn't ready. And it just, you know, I hadn't dealt with anything to be really honest up until that point. And it was in the October that I got to a point in my life where I was so low that the only way I can express this is I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I, the pain of sitting in the feeling, the pain of sitting in the grief, the pain that I was physically feeling, and it's a physical feeling, it was, it made me feel so sick that I could, didn't want to do it anymore. And so for me, that looked like, well, I just have to die. I, the only way for me to survive, I can't survive. So therefore I have to die. And I had never, ever, ever had a thought like that. I had had my fair share of exposure to suicidal people and thoughts and family members, etc. But not in a million years would I ever think 
that that thought would pass in my brain. But yet here I was. Here I was sitting in my space and I didn't want to do it anymore. I wasn't thinking straight about what that would look like at that point. I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't feel. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know how to grieve. I just didn't know what to do. I was seeing my counsellor and I was deep in pain, really, at this moment. So like everything in Nikki's life, (laughs) what do I do? I go out and get my affairs in order. I go out and I write a will and I work out a power of attorney and I get all my kids sorted and who they're going to go to and all of those things and I work all of that out and I get all that written up and I spend the best part of two grand on getting my will sorted because in my mind at that point the only way I was going to end the pain that I was in was to not be there and having had my fair share of exposure to suicide via friends and family it was like the person that was organizing all that wasn't me so I did disassociate from the person that was planning it and I would just go about planning it on my phone whilst making dinner like it was just it's just the most bizarre space to be in and the reason I'm sharing it is because no one knew no one in a million years would have thought that this was what was going through my mind and so I went as far as looking up what I would buy, I would take pills, how would that work, when would I do that, I didn't want one of the kids to find me but then this feeling would be over and you know sometimes I wouldn't even sleep at night because I would be laying there thinking about my funeral and I would think about my funeral and I would think how relaxed I would feel at it, how I would look at everyone being sad and how I just wished that they understood I was happy now. And these thoughts were powerful and I'm sharing them today because I know I'm not the only person that's done this and I know that I won't be the only person to do it again. But it was really bad and I was looking to source the drugs when, how I was going down that path. I then spoke to my counsellor and said, hey, this is getting bad, like I'm thinking this and she's like, okay, this is not great Um, and we worked on, I think we upped, you know, me seeing her to sort of twice a week for a couple of weeks and I was keeping the thoughts at bay but it was almost like once you let it in as an option, it's an option now. So, you know, there's like I've never tried a cigarette and I'm so proud to say I've never tried a cigarette And I'd always been someone, I would never be suicidal. You know, I would judge someone that would be suicidal. That would never happen to me. And yet here I was and I'd let that in, right? I'd let that crack in to what I thought was this powerful, strong, resilient brain of mine and soul. And for anyone wondering out there about suicide, because until this had happened to me, I thought anyone that committed suicide was selfish. I thought it was a selfish act. I thought, how could they do that to their family? How could they do that to their children? You know, children have found parents and, you know, all these sorts of horrific, 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 horrific things. But when you're in it, the pain I was in was so much greater than that. 
did I think about my kids? Yeah. Did I know it would fuck them up in some way? Yeah. But that wasn't as much of a payout for the pain that I was in myself. And that's pretty hard to say on air and share with the thousands of people that are going to be listening to that right now. And I hope that you don't judge me and I hope that you appreciate my candid honesty around this topic. So I went about my merry way and the idea wavered, uh, kind of, I got control for a few weeks and then I was scared that it wasn't going to work. So I got the pills and I was just petrified that I was going to take them and it wasn't going to be enough. And if I was going to do it, I was going to do it well because that's what I do. I take up running, I run a marathon. I work in retail, I become a general manager. That's just how I do it. So all of a sudden I was like, right, we've got to switch the plan. And this is really hard for me to say because once it's out there, it's out there. But I switched the plan to then wanting to jump off a building. And I went as far as which one, how, where, when I could do that. The children wouldn't know about it. It was guaranteed. And then it was over then the end was it and then I wouldn't need to feel the way that I felt right then. And I want to I want to um I want to say that the darkest days for me were only about 3 days. So I didn't sit in this deep dark pain for long. So for me I can remember being at work and I can remember not speaking and I can remember just thinking wow I won't have to come back here. I don't have financial worry anymore. I'm not going to have like I was really fucking celebrating in the fact that none of this was going to be my problem anymore. And that's fucked up, right? But I still didn't think I had a mental health issue. I was just like, no, I'm just going to be the person that's going to do it. I'm not committing suicide for attention because it wasn't about attention at all. It was not about attention for me. And I think that for some people it is. For some people an, a suicide attempt is definitely a scream for recognition. But this wasn't that. This was this was just going to happen. And it was going to happen on this date, on that night. I was going to book the pentat. Like I had it all organised. And so it was the Thursday and I went to my counsellor and I booked the appointment. And I went in and she was like, are you okay? And I said, look, I'm not good. Like, this is what I'm planning. And this is how far I've gone down the path. And she just looked at me and was just like, okay, we need a suicide plan. <laughs> I can just remember, I can, it's, it's like I'm looking in now at that girl. And I just remember thinking, well, we don't need a plan because it's like I'm not going to be here. And then she went on to tell me a story about another client of hers who wasn't dissimilar from me and was quite high achieving and was the breadwinner and blah, blah, blah. And the world thought she was just kicking it at life. And then she did this and she left behind her husband and child. And my counsellor was her counsellor. And she told me the story and she told me the guilt that she was riddled with because she was seeing her at the time and she told me point blank that I was in that same category. And so I sat there in her office and wrote up a suicide plan of which meant contacting my best friend. He became the next of kin. I had to tell him on the phone call that this was what I was thinking. This was what that looked like. And my children weren't with me that weekend and I would paid for the place I was going to stay at. And it got to the Friday and I still went to work. Like this is, 
I don't want to say irony, but this is the sort of stuff that I think people need to talk about because no one knew. I still went to work, got hot chips, left work, got home, and the plan was to then go and check into this particular place. And I got home and I just was like, uh, my my bestie was here um, saying like, we good, da, da, da. And I was like, no, we're not. Like I've done this and, you know, and he was like, okay, well, that's just not happening. And I stayed with him that night and I didn't go to the place and I don't remember a particular moment of saying, no, I don't want that anymore. I just kind of went, okay. And if I hadn't had the support person and if I hadn't have seeked professional help from that counsellor, I have absolutely no no question in my mind that I wouldn't be here today because I was going to do it well. It wasn't a cry for attention. It was the opposite. I just wanted the pain to end because I didn't know how to sit in it. So that's my story. And then the next day we awoke and we went to the waterfall. <laughs> we got in nature and I just very slowly built myself back up and I kept seeing my counsellor. I think that actually now that I think about it, I think I went back and saw her on the Friday. I think we went back and saw her when I still had the thoughts. Um, and then by the night, it just, I just was like, okay. You know, I was just mute. I was just nothing, just mute, just monotone, which wasn't me. And this was in October um, of 2021. And then after that, it wasn't like, oh, wow, now I'm back and now everything's just amazing. After that came a lot of work. It was like, right, I have a mental health issue. Like I let that get that bad. And I continued to see my counsellor and I exercised, I got outside. Number two, this was the most pivotal thing for me, for my mental health, was getting outside. I had moved from my beautiful home to a rental property and I'd gone from walking on the beach most days to then in an environment where I didn't do that. So getting outside, number two, had like such a massive effect on me. I started taking my little one to Mount Tambourine and hiking and swimming and wherever I could be outside, I just felt more alive. And the more you are in nature and the more you see things that are alive around you, be it trees, animals, grass, there's just something about it. It fucking, you know, everyone talks about it. Everyone says this, but it helps. If you have someone that you know is suffering from a mental health issue, get them in the fucking car and take them to a lookout. Take them somewhere that is in nature. Take them to the beach, walk them through a creek because I 100% became obsessed with doing that. And I then realized I hadn't grieved my relationship. <laughs> my relationship had ended. I'd been in survival mode. I'd done all the things to keep the family together, but I hadn't grieved. You know, it's like someone dying and then for the first year, everyone says the second year is the worst. I agree. You know, when you lose a partner, I sometimes used to think death would have been easier because death would have meant that people knew what I was going through and I wouldn't have felt so isolated and people would have rallied around me. But when it's a breakup, it's like death, but then you still got to see them when you've got a child together. It was really hard. 
it was a really hard time in my life. I continued to stay on medication. I didn't up my medication. And then fast forward now to 2022, which was all of last year. And I knew I needed to make some massive changes in my life. And I knew that I needed to focus 100% soul heartedly on me because I had hit my rock bottom and by no chance was that ever going to happen again. So I quit my job and I started painting and painting, as we know, has always been something I'd done. I threw myself into my business. I got a business coach. My first one and I didn't really click moved away from psychologists and counsellors to my then coach that I've been working with for the last 18 months, who is very much the coaching that I do, both business slash personal mental health, um, holistic approaches and teaches you tools. And, you know, I'd been coaching and mentoring people at a business level for my whole career. But then having then gone through such a low low i just had so much more empathy and sympathy for people i became so much less less judgmental as a person having gone through what i did i now look at anyone that has been suicidal or has had suicidal thoughts and i just i don't look at them and go oh how could you do that to your family i look at them and go you poor fucking thing it's fucked let me hug you what can we do i'm so sorry that that happened to you because your perspective changes until you've been in the situation, your perspective changes. So let's go through all of last year. Mentally, I do me, I grieve, I spend so much time alone. I rebuild who I am as a person and I'm working for myself and it's an amazing journey. And then comes to light ADHD. ADHD is everywhere. It's in the media, it's in podcasts. It feels like everyone's getting diagnosed, particularly women with ADHD. And you can't help but listen to it all. And you can't help but look at it all and see it all. And I'm there kind of going, hmm, I feel like I have a lot of those things. Oh, well, maybe I've got ADHD, who cares? It's made me successful, I am who I am. And that's been my opinion for all of last year around the whole ADHD topic. And I'm bringing it up today because I met a lady just recently who was a psychologist and I wasn't meeting her as a psychologist. I was meeting her through a mutual friend and we were at a cafe and we kind of got halfway through the conversation and she sort of looked at me and said, oh, do you, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know, little open book me. And she said, oh, have, are you diagnosed with ADHD? And I said, no, I'm not. And we talked on the podcast before, Becky's daughter had been diagnosed with it as well. And so we kind of had joked about it before. I said, no, I'm not diagnosed, but I certainly feel like I have, you know, many of the traits, you know, and she said, oh, I have it as well, but I have ADD and she explained the differences. And I said to her at the age of 47, you know, is there a purpose, do you think, in me getting diagnosed? And she said, look, only if you're open to medication. And I said, well, I take medication for anxiety, but I don't know if I have anxiety. I had PTSD, I got medication for anxiety. I still do get anxious, I have anxious moments. Or do I have ADHD? <laughs> so this thought was popped into my mind only 10 days ago. And so I share now with the listeners because I wanna take you guys on this journey and I have decided to explore it. I do believe that I have ADHD. I do struggle to concentrate. When I'm on, I'm on. When I'm off, I'm off. Um, I don't see it as a bad thing. I believe it's been a huge superpower. I know many famous successful people that do have ADHD. 
but I've decided to go and check it out and take you guys on that journey on the diagnosis, what happens, what's the process and share it with you. I'm definitely open to medication. Um, I'd like to come off the medication I'm on. I don't know whether that's serving any purpose. So I'm going to have a whole Nikki little health check. Uh, a Nikki mental health check. And I'm going to share the journey on the Your Say podcast because if you've got questions around ADHD, if you've got comments, voice message them into our Instagram because I want to talk about them. I want to bring those questions to the experts. I am talking with a doctor at the moment that I'm hoping to get on the podcast to talk to me about all of these things. So just when you think your mental health's right, I'm now going down another whole loophole, which I'm excited about. Wow, what a what an episode to come back to, episode 45, a deep one. The third thing I want to scream out to anyone that's suffering from mental health issues or has someone that's suffering from it is that nothing is permanent and that every single thing changes every single millisecond. I learned a lot about this when I went to the Vipassana meditation retreat and it's something that gets me through a tough moment, a tough second. Nothing is permanent. Everything changes. Everything changes now, now, the next second, the next second, the next second. So if you're in that pain right now, maybe you only need to make it through the next second, the next 10 seconds, the next 10 seconds. Nothing is permanent. So remember that. When you're in a dark moment or if you've got someone else that's in a dark moment, it's, you know, nothing is permanent. And I think around that third point, the only other message that I want to portray to everyone out there is when you are at a suicidal point in your life, you feel so alone. But you're actually not. You're not alone. There is Lifeline. There is all the numbers that every country has that you can access. There's coaching. There's social media people you can reach out to. There's me. There's there's just, you know, there's your people. There's, there's just so many people that you don't know that will not judge you that you can call out to. You know, my first point of help was my counsellor and you're not alone. So if there's someone listening to this today that feels like they've nodded their head throughout my podcast, uh, let me know. <laughs> I feel anxious right now having shared this. You know, this is obviously not something my children know about. It's not something my family know about. I don't think my family listened to this podcast, but hey, now they might, you know. And had I not made it through that, I know there would have been hundreds of people, well, put tickets on yourself there, Nick. I'd like to think there was hundreds of people that would have sat back and gone, fuck, we didn't know that. I wish we had done this. I wish we had done this. And so if I can leave you with one thing, it's that if you're thinking of someone or if you think that someone's struggling, just reach out, reach out to them with a number, a love heart emoji. Like you just don't know what difference that can actually make to their day. Oh my goodness, that was so, so heavy. So I'm going to wrap it up here, guys. Um, mental health part two, Nikki's journey. My top three tips for improving your mental health and for those that you might think are in a really dark space. Number one, ask for help. 
get help from a professional. You can go to a GP for free in Australia. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but we have a health system that you can access. I won't say it's perfect, but you can access help and you can get mental health plans, etc. It doesn't always need to be a psychologist. It could be a counsellor. It could be a coach. It could be the lifeline number. There are so many organisations out there that I just didn't even know existed. It's blown me away. Number one, ask for help. Number two, get outside. Get outside. Get outside, ground yourself. Put your feet in the water. Go to a national park. Fucking plant something. Just get in nature. Super, super important and really, really helpful. And number three... Nothing is permanent. Gonka from Vipassana says anicca, 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 which means nothing is permanent. Everything is always changing. So if you're in that tough moment, just fucking hold on, right? Because it's going to change in the next second. So that's my story. Heavy podcast to come back to. I can assure you the lightness is coming back. It is not going to be doom and gloom. We have got amazing guests lined up for you. And I look forward to dropping another podcast early next week. Have a great week, guys. Bye for now. But first, some information from our sponsor, Dress to the Nines, Gippsland. Here's how it works, guys. I've actually just done this because I've got two events coming up in one week. So you jump on Instagram, you have a look at all the beautiful dresses, you get in contact with the girls, you don't even need to phone them, you can just message them directly. They send you, I got five dresses express posted to me today. I try them on, I work out which one I'm going to wear, I let them know which one I'm going to wear. They've sent me a self-addressed envelope, all for free. So far, I haven't paid for anything. Once I choose the dress I'm going to wear, I wear it and I send them all back and I'm charged for one wear. The most expensive high you have is $105. So depending on the dress that you get, they've got all the brands. Oh my God, they've got all the brands. Zimmerman, Chic, da 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 all the brands. So look out because I'm going to be looking hot. Make sure you follow them on Instagram, dressed to the nines, Gippsland.